0: you to turn this morning to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll go back as far as verse 13 this morning for a reading. and read as far as verse 18. So, This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. We have the privilege of hearing this morning part of the truth that David was rejoicing in. Of course, he did not have the New Testament, but the special revelation God has given to sinners where he has revealed his will very clearly in a word that is written down. Let's hear the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. "'For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, "'because when ye received the Word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, "'which effectually worketh also in you that believe. "'For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, "'which in Judea are in Christ Jesus.' But ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus, and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. For the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, Endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Amen. We'll end our reading there. Let's still our hearts momentarily in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for everything that has preceded this time. We have had our hearts lifted up and encouraged already. Indeed, in some ways, if we were to leave at this point, we would have reason to be encouraged, but we are thankful for that special revelation that Thou hast given, that which is the very inspiration of the hymns that we sing, the songs that we offer, the foundation upon which we praise Thee. As we have the Word open before us for the purpose of preaching and hearing, we pray that Thou wilt give that special help and favor that we need. We are very dull, Lord. Even the preacher must lament his own dullness. I pray for the quickening power of Thy Spirit in my own heart and for Thy quickening grace to be upon all that hear the word as well. So feed Thy sheep, Lord. For my part, help me to feed the sheep and to feed the lambs and do that which is impossible for any mere man to do. Really, get the word into the soul, and do good to the hearts to all that all of all that hear. There are some in our midst that are not saved. We pray for them, Lord, open their eyes. Call them into Thy love. We pray. In Jesus' precious name, we ask these things. Amen. Such was the contention that developed in Paul's ministry in this particular city of Thessalonica. We are told that the believers sent him away, that is, he and Silas away to Berea. We'll not turn again to Acts chapter 17, but you will find it there in the narrative that Luke records. In light of this, it appears from verse 17 through 20 of the portion that we have read here in chapter 2. We didn't go all the way through to verses 19 and 20, but in this portion it seems that Paul is answering a concern, a concern that deals with A sense that they perhaps were beginning to think that he didn't really like them, that he didn't really care for them, that he had not much concern for them because they had an expectation that he would return to them, that he and Silas and Timothy would come back when everything would settle and return to be an encouragement to the church there and continue the work that had begun. But that does not occur as we read, they desire to come in verse 17 and Paul specifically relates to himself that he would want to come and join that party, but Satan hindered them. And it seems as if it occurred in a number of times where they desired to be there. Verse 17, let's read it again. We, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. So there's this great longing. In fact, the word endeavored in the original has a sense of diligence and haste about it. In fact, it's used in relation to travel on other occasions by the Apostle Paul when he writes to Timothy and Titus in 2 Timothy 4.9 and Titus 3.12 that they would do their diligence to come to him. And this is the same word that's being used here and he's saying that we endeavored, I endeavored to do what I instructed Timothy to do, what I would later instruct Titus to do, to come to me, I was endeavoring, I was diligent in my desire to come and see your face with great desire. And so verse 18, he continues on, We would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. There was this repeated desire, a number of attempts made in order to go and see them again, but they were prevented. The activity which was going on in order to prevent Paul from returning to the work in the city, he ascribes to Satan. He says, Satan hindered us. And whenever we read that, it ought to trouble us initially, unless we think about it correctly, of course, but trouble us in the sense that if we understand what the Lord Jesus promised in Matthew 16, verse 18, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, when we read this language, it appears on the surface that the gates of hell are prevailing against the church, that Satan is hindering some aspect of the work of God, preventing the men of God doing their desire Fulfilling their sense of obligation to the churches. Now, of course, we know that cannot be. But we need to understand it then, what is going on here. And so this morning, we're considering this this idea of Satan hindering. Satan hindering. And three very simple points. First, the reaction to Satan, Satan's activity. The recognition of Satan and his activity. And then the reality of our Savior's sovereignty. So we come then to the first main point this morning. The reaction to Satan's activity, verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. The language of verse 17 is fairly straightforward. I don't really have to explain too much about it. He deviated for a time, that is the Apostle Paul, into this aspect of the Jews and their opposition to the gospel in verses 14 through 16, that we considered last Lord's Day morning. That's really a deviation because the flow of verse 17 and 18 and what is uh, picked up upon there really comes out of verse 13. In verse 13, the apostle is rejoicing in the reception of the Word. He is rejoicing in how the Word had that impact that every preacher desires in the recipients of the Word, that they received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which effectually works it continues to work in you that believe. And in verse 17 then, he goes on to continue on. Well, well, here's what happened. We went there, you received the word, and then we were taken from you for a short time in presence. We were removed from your presence. You can see the flow then as he rehearses the history of what happened in the establishment of this particular church. We brought the word, you received the word, we rejoice in that, and then we were forced, we were made to be taken from you in presence for a short time. I think you can see the flow of his uh, writing here. This unplanned departure is what we're looking at and what occurred on that occasion. Paul says only a short time had passed when they were taken from their presence and they were still in their hearts, still harboring that sense of affection toward them, though they could not see them, they loved them within their own being. And they longed to see their face with great desire. As I say, it's, it's a very simple text. Not really much that needs to be said. Of course, with the failed attempts that were made, just quickly moving on to verse 1 of chapter 3, you will see that then, following that, they sent Timothy to them. We'll read verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, just so you know that this occurs. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we couldn't wait any longer, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, that's he and Silas, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. We sent Timothy just to ensure that you would not be moved by the the, the punishing experience of being a Christian at this time in this particular part of the world. We couldn't go. I, Paul, couldn't go. Silas couldn't go. But we sent Timothy to be an encouragement to you. But what is interesting about verse 17, at least, that I thought in my study for this uh, message this morning, is a particular word that he uses in verse 17 that we'll just pause on just for a moment. Because when he says, but we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, that verb there, being taken, is in the Greek is a compound word, but you will be familiar with the main heart of the verb, the root of it, that our word orphan comes from it. And you you have all sorts of connotations that will come from that word and and we maybe would apply too much and take too much to heart in trying to put in a meaning there. But the sense of it, as one commentator put it, uh, is in this way. He says, uh, It is an allusion to that grief, anxiety, and reluctance of heart with which dying parents take farewell of their children when they are just going to leave them helpless orphans exposed to the injuries of the world or that sorrow of heart which poor destitute orphans close the eyes of their dying parents. There's a sense of a parting that's felt here between orphans and the the parting of the parents, and and that's the word that he uses in order to, to add drama to the feeling and the experience that was in his heart as he was forced, as I say unplanned, to be removed from ministry among them. We, brethren, being taken from you, orphaned from you, we were removed like Like in that sense of being parted in a way that brings lamentation to the heart and soul. It's for a short time. And yet they carry them in their hearts. I think that's very interesting. I don't want to elaborate too much upon Paul's love for this church. We have made mention of it on numerous occasions. The opening verses of this chapter really highlight it for us in in many ways. Where he talks about... Uh, being gentle among them, verse seven, even as a nurse cherishes their children, being affectionately desirous of you, verse eight, and then you have uh, language even going on that in verse twelve, where he, t- verse eleven rather, where he talks about being as a father, uh, like a father toward children, and so this is language of affection, and we've established that already. But here the apostle Paul is emphasizing it by this sense of parting, being like this sense of of being removed as as children from their parents. It's not something he desired. I suppose if they were there, doubting their, his love, doubting Silas's love, and thinking, well, there they're gone, and the accusation had come, even as it seems from the opening verses of this chapter, where there was these accusations saying that, look at verse 3, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor of guile, and this accusation had been coming. Verse 5, neither at any time use me flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory. So some of these accusations we have suggested were, were being put to the apostle and they're being confirmed by the fact that he hadn't returned. Now you can add it together. You can see the picture as it builds. There, there, having received Christ, responded to the word, the attacks from unbelieving Jews primarily are saying, look, he's just a charlatan. He's a fake. He's a fraud. Don't listen to him. All of those particular individuals that were raised up those certain uh, fellows of the baser sort that the language is used in the authorized version in Acts 17, these people are standing and saying, look, they're, they're just fake, they're frauds, don't listen to them, and they have committed their entire lives to Jesus Christ. They have responded to the Word, and now they're teetering perhaps upon wondering, is, is what they're saying true? Have we been duped? Is it all a lie? And they would be saying, well, if He really cared for you, He would come back. He wouldn't leave you alone. No good Teacher, no good instructor, no good father in that sense of spiritual guidance would just leave you as an infant in the things of truth or whatever you've been taught. You would, of course, have many in those days in the Greek world, you would have your, your, your philosophers and they would have their students around them and they would be committed to them to instruct them and teach them. And this would be the image that would be built up. Teachers don't leave their students like this. They don't, don't just depart unless they're frauds. So Paul's answering that doubt, that seed of doubt that had been planted there, either from their own hearts or from outsiders speaking into them and saying, look, it's it's all been a lie. And the language he uses, again, is full of meaning, full of heart, full of affection. Being taken like orphan from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face. We diligently desire to see your face with great desire. Of course, Timothy would have communicated this already. Timothy's been there already. That's what he says in chapter 3 in the opening verses. We sent Timothy to you. So Timothy went along and no doubt communicated this, and they were aware of it. But Paul is just backing up what Timothy said. Timothy's just not making excuses for the apostle Paul. He is saying what is true. As he carries the letter with him, the mind of Paul is unveiled to them as well. But that brings us then to the heart of the issue. This whole work and activity of Satan. That brings us then to our second point, the recognition of Satan and his activity in verse 18. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul leaves off here in this verse from speaking in terms of, of bringing the whole party of Silas and Timothy along with himself into it. And he focuses upon himself here not saying that they had no desire to come, but he's saying, look, I wanted, I, Paul, also wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. As we think about this, consider first then the person of Satan. The person of Satan. We need to know what we're dealing with here in the individual that is mentioned. And I, co- I suppose we could just assume a lot, but I don't want to do that. And while I'm not intending to get into a whole theology of Satan and dealing with all the doctrine relating to Satan, what we need to understand is that Satan is a real personality created by God initially as a perfect angelic being who rebelled and becomes the chief opposer of the will of God. Satan, as the term is given here, is just one of the many names and descriptions given to this great enemy of the Lord. He is also called many times in the New Testament the devil. That word is very interesting, that idea of being the devil, is the sense of being the slanderer. In fact, it's used not just of Satan, but is used even of the Lord's people, and I'll not turn you to the passages, because you may note that the bulk of those passages actually apply towards women, and the, the term that's used is in our translation is false accuser. And Paul refers, uh, uh, warns rather the woman in Titus 2, as well as in Timothy, he warns that the woman not be false accusers focusing on on them, this particular sin that that they would would speak in such a way of false accusation. And when you read the Greek, it's the same term as used for Satan himself, the the idea of the devil, him being this great slanderer. Of course, this characteristic of Satan goes right back to Genesis chapter 3, when he twisted the word of God and said, in Genesis 3 verse 1, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. God had not said that. You're not to eat of every tree of the garden. God didn't say God on the other. The total opposite. He said you can have every tree just except one. He's twisting it. He's putting a negative spin upon it. This is the beginning of the slandering activity of Satan himself. But he does not stop with just slandering the Lord. He also slanders the people of God. In Revelation chapter 12 verse 10, this is how he is identified when It is recorded there, the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The accuser of the brethren. This this is the activity of Satan toward the people of God. He brings accusations. He brings suggestions that are not true. He is a liar from the beginning, the very father of lies. Jesus called him. And in those lies, are not just general lies, just, just broadcasting general lies to try and to, to subvert the advance of the kingdom of Christ. But those lies are applied to the individual. He comes to individual believers. He comes to your heart, child of God, and he brings lies to you. The accuser of the brethren. Accusations about your sin being too great for the blood of Christ to wash away, even though you're regenerate. You live under, at times, this oppressive feeling that you're so guilty, there's no possible way you could truly be saved. you ever have that doubt? Am I really saved? Am I really the Lord's? Who instigates that? Would the Lord have you to question the fact that you are His child? Put yourself in the position, just as we were considering in Adult Sunday School this morning dealing with the doctrine of adoption. Mr. Farr has been calling us to to think of it in terms of of what we experience even in in the human uh, uh, transaction of adoption. When you think about that, think of a child adopted. Does the adoptive parent want the child adopted to live in a constant state of confusion and quandary and doubt as to whether... They really belong in that family. Of course not. Constant reassurance. You're part of this family. You're part of this family. You take our name. You have all the benefits of every other sibling within this family. You're part of this family as much as any biological child could be. You're part of the family. We would not have them live and die. So the Lord is not in the business of putting seeds of doubt in your mind, getting you to question, am I really His? He doesn't do that. This is the activity of Satan, the activity of the devil himself, the accuser. That's the, when you say devil, that's the chief activity you're bringing to your mind. He is the slanderer. He comes with lies, repeated lies before the brethren, He accused them before our God day and night, it is said. Continually. He never lets up. Always, always a ceiling upon your soul. Bringing lies of accusation as you try to live before God. Be very conscious of it, child of God. Be very aware of it. When those accusations come as commonly they do, especially in relation to our sin. And it's thrown up in our face. I was just talking to someone recently about this. Whenever, whenever those accusations come, you just, you write over them. You write over them. Not some nice thought about how wonderful per- a person you are. Some motivational phrase that you have plastered on your wall or whatever. No, no, no. No, what is sufficient to motivate you and to answer it is this. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth me from all sin. And you write that over the accusations. When the accuser roars, when he brings a slandering activity into your ears trying to get you sidetracked and doubting the love of God and the work of God's Spirit in your life, you answer, by means of the blood of Christ. He's a great slanderer. He's also a great destroyer as well. In Revelation 9:11. without getting into the context there, we're told they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Apollyon, Abaddon, whatever the term is used, whether Hebrew or Greek, it is the destroyer. He is the destroyer. He is about the business of destroying. God gives life. Satan brings death. Jesus made it very plain in John 10, verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Everything negative, everything in the sense that is opposed to life and good and right and justice and equity, Everything in opposition to that has its foundation, has its source in the devil himself, the great destroyer. As I say, there are many names given to him, many descriptions. He's also called the tempter, the prince of devils, the wicked one, your adversary, the god of this world, the prince of this world, that old serpent, and so on and so forth. And he is the enemy of the Lord and of the people of God. And he is a very powerful force. Of that there is no doubt. Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. It takes a lot to hinder the Apostle Paul. It's not some simple thing. The Apostle Paul is not the kind of person... I remember (laughs) one of our ministers in, in Northern Ireland. He would talk about, you know, we're meant to be pulling down the strongholds of the devil... He said the average Christian can't even have, doesn't even seem to possess the power to get up and turn off the television set when something comes on that they shouldn't be watching, never mind pulling down the strongholds of the devil. That's true. We're very weak. We are very weak. But Paul generally wasn't like that. Paul manifests tremendous spiritual strength. He's a soldier of the cross, if ever there was one. And he says Satan hindered us, so let us not underestimate the foe That we face. So we have the person of Satan. We also have then the persecution of Satan. Satan hindered us, he says. He hindered us. This word hindered, again, is a compound word of the meaning to cut with the preposition in. So to cut into is the idea. To impede one's course is the sense, sometimes used in warfare as a tactic to, like digging trenches and so on, to impede the progress. Of others, Well, this is what Satan is about. He is about digging trenches, digging holes, putting obstacles in the path that slow people down, that hinder them. That's the idea that Paul is putting before us here. And he, this is what he experienced. Satan hindered. He cut away in our path and prevented us from making the progress that we desired. He uses the word in a similar context in Romans 15, verse 22. And this is in re- relation to the church at Rome. He had not been there at this stage, he says, For which cause I also have been much hindered from coming to you. And then he uses the same word in application to Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, where he is dealing with this horrendous and, and an amazing scene of, of individuals that have, have departed from the gospel. And he asks them the question. In Galatians 5 7, ye did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Who is cutting a trench around you? Who is actively working to stop your progress in enjoying the gospel? And of course at the heart of it, while you may give certain names, the Judaizers and so on that were actively persecuting and trying to distort the gospel in the region of Galatia, yet again behind them was their great commander-in-chief, the devil himself. He is hindering, constantly about the business of hindering. Now, in the context here, we have no idea what Satan was doing to hinder Paul. Various suggestions have been made, even in relation to the context previously dealt with, that of the Jews and their activity of of trying to stop the, the progress of the gospel to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, verse 16. That may be the case, it may be the Jews, or it may be something else entirely different to that. We have no idea. Paul does not elaborate upon it. He just says Satan hindered us. We tried to get back and Satan hindered us. That's the sense. That's it. Satan was working to prevent us from returning to your presence. And really that's all the point that we need to draw from this. That's all Paul really would have us learn is that Satan is in the business of hindering the work of God. He is beloved. We we have all sorts of interests. We're very different people. You have different interests. I have different interests, different things that make you tick. Some of you are into sports. Many of you may be into sports, but you're into different sports. Different hobbies, different activities, different ways of winding down, different ways of relaxing, different ways of get whatever. We are very, very different. When it comes to Satan, he really has one thing in mind. Destroy the kingdom of Christ. Do his level best to oppose everything the Lord Jesus Christ is about. That's what he lives for. His whole existence is manifested in that way. From the very beginning chapters of our Bibles, we see that. He doesn't let up for a second. He's in there immediately trying to distort what God has said to His people and His purposes for them. According to the parable of the sower, He steals away the seed of the word from hearts. He does that. He is the, the fowls of the air that steal away the seed of the word. That is Satan's work. According to another parable, he sows tares among the wheat. And so he comes and pollutes the harvest. We sang of it, false sons in her peel. He, he's doing that. That's that's his work. <laughs> Matthew four we read that he tempted Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, he blinds sinners and opposes the gospel. Exodus seven eleven, he performs counterfeit miracles. John 8:44, he lies. 1 Corinthians 7:5, he tempts Christians. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2:11, he seeks to take advantage of them, and so on and so forth. If you go through your Bible, you'll see it for yourself. He is constantly opposing, hindering, cutting trenches around to cause Christians to stumble and prevent the forward progress of the gospel. You may remember that a portion in. Matthew 16, where Peter, upon hearing that the Lord's intention was to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life, he opposes that. He rebukes the Lord. And the Lord's response on that occasion, in Matthew 16:23, are found in these words. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God but those that be of men. Because Peter opposed Christ going to the cross, because Peter opposed Christ fulfilling the Father's will, the Lord says, Satan. Peter, you're doing the work of Satan. We should just stop there and consider the fact that Christians can do the work of Satan. I already said to you that Paul uses the word for devil, diabolos, in relation to false accusers and applies that to those that are believers. On this occasion, he says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Believers can do the work of the devil. On the occasion whenever Mary brought the box of ointment of spikenard which was very precious to present it before the Lord you will see it very clearly when you bring all the passages together that deal with that event you will see Christians, believers doing the work of the devil because Judas whom we're told had a devil opens up his mouth immediately upon seeing her sacrifice and says this could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. Immediately brings slander. Slander. That's really what it is. It's disguised in language of piety. It could have been given to the poor. This was, this was a poor decision, Mary. You really, you really did not get it right here. It's slander against her devotion. Even at the heart of where she is doing an act of devotion that was Memorable. A time where she is pouring out her heart and affection toward the Lord. Oh, think of it. You can sit in the Lord's house or have times of your own times of prayer when you're being most devout toward Christ. The devil's there. He's right there. Mary had gotten herself to a point where she takes this valuable item that belonged to her and motivated herself to show her love for Christ, to stand even publicly with all the disciples surrounded. That wasn't her desire, but it was an opportunity that she took, and she brings that box of ointment, presents it to the Lord, and immediately the slander is there. This could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. And you know what? I think it's Mark records this. Mark records it in Mark 14. And they all... Murmured against her. All the disciples. They all, he begins it. Judas, the one who had a devil, he begins it. He instigates it. He speaks it first. Then they all murmured against her. You can just see the ripple effect. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, that's very right. You're you're you're, you're right there, Judas. Yes, Mary. Why why did you not think of that? This was an awful waste. The devil's work. Eleven men grounded in the truth, taught by the master himself, doing the devil's work. And Peter does it here as well in Matthew sixteen. Anything that opposes the work of redemption are a manifestation of praise for the work of redemption is satanic in all of Satan's activity to prevent the redemptive work of Christ coming to pass and being applied to the hearts of men and women he is there to oppose it and those who will stand in opposition to thanksgiving for the work. They're doing the devil's work as well. And Satan, or Peter, was about this. He was opposing the Lord, fulfilling the redemptive plan. And the Lord calls him Satan. Let us not be found among such a number... We have seen then the reaction to Satan's activity, the recognition of Satan and his activity. We then come thirdly and finally to see the reality of our Savior's sovereignty. The reality of our Savior's sovereignty. While it may appear that Satan was exercising some control here, I do not want us to miss the fact that Christ is sovereign over everything that is going on. Everything. It may be said here, although Satan meant it for evil... Lord meant it for good. He did. And I'm just going to mention a few things that highlight the sovereignty of Christ in this, and you could maybe go ahead and meditate more upon it to the edification of your own soul. Sovereignty of Christ and what was going on here. First, Christ's sovereignty is seen in the fact that the church was planted in the first place. Had Satan had his way, Paul would never have made it to this city would never have made it into the synagogue, would never have made it to open up the Word and to have the influence that he had initially during that time. It's not like he was unaware of the apostles' intent when he went there. He's following him the whole way. You think of the language that the Lord says to Satan about Job, hast thou considered my servant Job? <laughs> well, he had. You read and you see, well, yes, well, you've put a hedge around him. You had been watching him. Satan has so desired to get his hands upon Job. He wanted an opportunity to to, to pull down that holiest of men. And so it was for Paul. Satan was following him everywhere. Everywhere he went. When he was in Philippi, he was there. He moves into Thessalonica, he is there. He is there. Satan is there. He knows. He knows what's going on. So Satan was exercising some degree of sovereignty here Paul would have been hindered getting there in the first place. He never would have made it. But Paul does make it. He comes right into that city, and he plants a church. I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful just to consider that with all that the enemy endeavors to do, every faithful church stands as a witness that even though he was exercising all of his might, he failed. He failed miserably. In fact, you don't even have to consider it just in terms of of the church. You can consider it in terms of the soul. What does he endeavor to do? 2 Corinthians 4.4 He endeavors to blind the minds of them which believe not. Blind their minds. Well, here you are Your minds have been enlightened. The light of the glorious gospel has shone in. If Satan was sovereignly working, if he had power, that would never have occurred. You are evidence, not of the sovereignty of Satan, but the sovereignty of Christ. You here singing praise to the Lamb, rejoicing in the blood of Christ, singing all for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. You are evidence of the fact Satan failed. He did not have power. It's not like you were unimportant. Every single Christian is another testimony, another voice of the goodness of God, of the gospel of Christ, of what the Lord Jesus shed his blood for. And he is against every last one of us. And he failed. He failed. And I say failed because <laughs> whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You're free. The Lord has set you free. And Satan will never have you to himself again. So Christ's sovereignty is seen in the fact that the church was planted in the first place. Let us not miss that. Oh, I could say more. I'll just (laughs) curb my, my thoughts at this time. But Christ's sovereignty is seen also in the fact that Satan felt threatened. Satan felt threatened. If Satan was hindering Paul and Silas, and Timothy no doubt as well, endeavoring to, but specifically Paul and Silas, then he clearly felt threatened by what was going on and what they were doing. A striking thought. He sees them and he opposes them. He is against them. And he is threatened by what they're doing. And so it was an act of opposition against their work. So we ask the question, if Satan was opposing these men, what kind of men were they? Well, This chapter has told us, in part, as the Apostle Paul has laid out the kind of man that he was, the kind of men that they were. I'll not go over it all, but you can see the kind of men that they were. But I think at the very head of this chapter is really the heart of what bothered Satan so much. It's found there in verse 2. This particular characteristic is the one he cannot stand. It's the one he hates, most of all, perhaps. Even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye you know it, Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Satan hates the person who cannot be held down and continues to be bold in proclaiming Christ. That is the one thing he hates. We've already quoted 2 Corinthians 4:4. He, he, he seeks to blind the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in. And the light of the glorious gospel shines in by proclamation, by souls going out and boldly proclaiming Jesus is Lord. And this is what Paul was doing. He could not be stopped. They were were shamefully entreated at Philippi, and they continued to be bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. In the midst of even more contention, we continued to be bold. And Satan hates that. Paul was, he was just a, a, a torrent of courage. And Satan had no answer really for it most of the time. He hated how bold he was. Because everything he was bold about was in opposition to his own kingdom. The whole world lieth in wickedness. Christ has come to be a light to the Gentiles. Paul's to manifest that by, by, by personifying it, actually, because he is to be a light to the Gentiles himself. He so imbibes the gospel of Christ, the light to the Gentiles, and lives it out that he himself is a light to the Gentiles. And so all the nations that the Satan has had for a millennia they don't have the truth, they don't have the Word of God, they're lying in darkness. I know at this point they, he is really working among areas where there were, was some truth in the form of the synagogues and the Word of God was there, but he is spreading into the world, he is moving into territories that in large part had been kept in darkness. And as he goes there and he proclaims the gospel, it's this proclamation of the gospel. I, I think that's the chief characteristic that Satan particularly hated about Paul. So he opposed them. He opposed them with all of his might. As so I was thinking about this, my mind was brought back to many, many years ago, too long ago so I, that I can't remember the specifics. But I remember reading about one of those old evangelists. It was either W.P. Nicholson or Leonard Ravenhill, or I'm inclined to think it may have been Jock Troop. And I remember it was when I first heard, I'm sure it wasn't original to them, it was when I was first heard about being known in hell. And this desire of the believer to be known in hell. The idea comes from Acts chapter 19. If you just flip back there for a moment, you'll see it. And this, this is another tremendous testimony to the, the power that Paul exerted and how much of a thorn it was in the kingdom of darkness. Acts chapter 19, we'll read from verse 13. So you'll see if you go back to verse 11, God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. There's, There's tremendous work being done through this man as he boldly goes around preaching the gospel and healing many souls. And verse 13 says, Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying... We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. There were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. these individuals take it upon themselves to think that they can do what Paul is doing simply by taking the name that that, that Paul is doing it in, the name of Jesus Christ. And the response that comes from the demon-possessed individual, I think, is very enlightening. And this is where this, this desire has come. I don't know how far back it goes, but certainly some of those old evangelists used to refer to it about being known in hell because Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but I don't know who you are. And so they're, they're thwarted. They're completely overcome. They're not known. They're not known because they, they have no power against the kingdom of darkness. And that old desire, and I think it should be a desire that we all have in some way to be recognized as a thorn in the side of the enemy himself, that we are known amongst the, the discourse of the enemy, of all the demons and the devil himself, Known because of our work in magnifying Christ and making much of the gospel and liberating the souls of men and women. The primary reason Satan opposes certain individuals with such force is because they preach the gospel. He has blinded the minds of them which believe not. He tries to blind them, he wants to keep them there. And the one thing that liberates them is the light of the gospel. The light of the gospel. Oh, Christian, get into your heart. You want to see souls saved? You want to see their hearts opened? You want to see their lives transformed? You have to shine the light. You have to let it shine. You have to just expose souls to the light. By every means possible, by every effort, God will bless your desire to bring light to darkened souls. You can think about it whatever way you like. You can think about it because you hate the devil so much. If you hate the devil so much and that motivates you, then do it because he hates this above everything else. But I trust it's more in the positive. The Lord loves it. He loves His name being proclaimed and being moved out of affection, the love of Christ constraining you to make His name known. And he will bless it and liberate the souls of men. Christ's sovereignty is seen also in the fact that the church survived and thrived without Paul. Very quickly, I'll just make mention of this. You go to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Just one portion that came to mind in relation to the fact that all of the worries and concerns that this church would maybe fall apart without their presence was not necessary. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. He says to them, look, as we go about our business, pray for us that the word may run as it's running with you. That's the idea of having free course. Running. The word running. The word was running in this city. Paul was not there. Silas was not there. Timothy was not there at this stage. And the Word is running. It is running. It's like taking sprinter's legs and it's running into hearts. And Paul says, pray. Pray that what's going on there will happen here. Wherever we are, what we're doing, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may run and be glorified even as it is with you. What a prayer. That's a good prayer, you know. That's a good prayer for this church here in Greenville that the Word would run. I tell you, it's something extraordinary when you look back in history and you see basically the same things going on as go on at present, only it seems as if there's a greater impact. And the only difference is the Word seems to be running. It's taken legs. And the Spirit of God is carrying the Word with extraordinary impact in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. That's when the Spirit of God takes it and it runs swiftly. And Paul says, you need to pray for it. You need to pray for it. Pray the Word will run. Let it run. Oh, that the Word would run in Greenville. Not just here in the Haywood Road, but every faithful church, every man who is truly preaching the Word of God in truth, that the Word would run. That our neighbors would be spared the trajectory of which we we're going, all the, the pain and suffering of, of a world that is beginning to become more and more like the world Noah lived in before the flood. The Word running, running. And one other point, Christ's sovereignty is seen in the fact that this hindrance led to a new ministry. This hindrance led to a new ministry. I, I can't say that definitively, but I'll tell you what I mean. This letter, the first, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, is the first letter we have in terms of dates and chronology from Paul's hand. It's the very first one. And this whole hindering, this, the whole circumstances of, of him being hindered from returning is why he puts pen to paper and sends it with Timothy to take to the church for their encouragement. He had not done this before. This, in, in, the, in the sense of, of what we have in our New Testament, this is the very first one. This, and this is what I mean, it was a new ministry for Paul. Writing, putting pen to paper, as it were, and writing his thoughts down. I think of the lasting impact that has had. Satan hindered. He meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Paul, I'm going to have you there, stopped, halted. Satan Is hindering, but I am working my purpose sovereignly through that hindering work. And you're going to be stalled so that you sit down and you write this letter, and it's not there just for one little group living in one generation that you can minister to for the the length of your life, but you're going to write something that will that will be a missionary into the generations. That Paul's missionary endeavor it takes legs. Through being written down, and far outlasts the man himself. That is the sovereignty of Christ. He, he did that. He worked it in that way, and that should bring such praise from our hearts. Love, there, there are certainly hindrances. As we close here this morning, there are certainly hindrances. To the work of God. Many of them are practical. I could mention a number. A lack of gift within a church is a hindrance. A lack of labourers in the church is a hindrance. A lack of practical means can be a hindrance. And most significantly, remaining sin within all of the Lord's people is a is a great hindrance. But it is also important for us to remember this. It's not just the hindrances, but the hinderer himself. There's a hinderer. There is a person working to hinder the work of God, actively opposing every honest endeavor to magnify Christ and bring glory to his name. He is working. He is working right now. He is. Here in this meeting he is working. He's trying to steal away the seed of the word. You can just see the fowls of the air. Remember Abraham having to drive them away as he sought to land upon the carcasses that he had divided up waiting for the Lord to come by. Oh, they're hovering. They're just there. They're, They're there. They're swirling around to steal the seed of the word. Swirling around your heart perhaps. So that the gospel, every time you hear it, does not have an impact, does not run into your heart. And you remain in a condition of spiritual poverty, whether you're saved or unsaved. We are not to be ignorant of his devices. He attempts to hinder every aspect of this work, every ministry from this church. Listen, those involved in VBS, Satan will be working. He will. He will be working. Working actively in every possible way. Every means you can begin to imagine he is working already. And so he would have you for perhaps to, to leave preparation to the last minute so he just don't get it all done as well as, as possible. He'll make you... Come under the tyranny of the urgent so that you cannot prepare yourself aright. And he would have you to not invite those that are in your mind right now to invite, but he would try to hinder you from doing that. He would try to hinder you from praying and bringing it before the Lord. And he, oh, you name it, he will be actively working. Same with the camp, same with every ongoing ministry in this church, neighborhood, Bible club, boys' home. The Lord's Day services, Sabbath school, everything. Every single thing, beloved. He is working. He is constantly, actively working. Let us not just see the hindrances. Let us understand the hinderer. We have an adversary He goes about like a roaring lion. Satan hindered us, Paul said. And we're not to be ignorant, as I've said, of his devices. Let us therefore live very much aware I'm quite certain that Paul didn't see Satan here. It wasn't like Satan came down and said, I'm I'm against you, Paul. But he could see the handiwork of Satan. He could discern it because he wasn't ignorant of his devices. And I wonder how many times we are ignorant of the devil's devices. And we ascribe blame where it doesn't really belong. Again, you, you think of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the tares are sown among the wheat. And there's a desire to come and, well, let's pull those tares up. And, but the, the acknowledgement there at that occasion is, an enemy hath done this. You see the handiwork of the enemy. An enemy hath done this. this the, the tares didn't fall out of the sky. The tares didn't come from the wheat themselves. An enemy has been actively working here. And he actively works. To cause discouragement. Harm. Disarray, everything. But Christ is sovereign. He is sovereign. We were singing that psalm this morning. Psalm 126. And it just came to me as I I was singing that psalm, the sovereignty of Christ even in that psalm. He truly is the one spoken of there. It is the Lord that goeth forth bearing precious seed, isn't it? He is the the sower. He's the one truly sowing the precious seed. He's the one actively working in His church. He goes forth bearing precious seed and doubtless, doubtless, beyond shadow of doubt, will come, will return, come back rejoicing, bringing His sheaves with Him. He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let us bow together in prayer. Perhaps you're here this morning and Satan has you in his hands. You belong to him. You're living for him. You're listening to him. You're putting your own carnal desires and the temptations of the evil one ahead of everything the Lord says to you. You will not prosper. The wicked are like the troubled sea. I would call you this morning to consider the hardening of your heart, the disobedience that you practice in not listening to the Lord. To be aware an enemy is working upon your soul and greatly opposes you coming to Christ. If you have any questions, I'd be glad to hear them and open the Word of God with you. Our Father, we're thankful for Thy Word this morning. We are thankful for the fact that even the apostles experienced what we experienced, that they were not above the experiences that the church continue continues to face today. We think of Paul's language when he found himself in prison and the church at Philippi were lamenting the, the apparent hindrance that was to the gospel and he said to them that this has fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. So Lord we pray against the enemy today. We pray that where he seeks to hinder the work of this congregation the work of thy kingdom at large that though he may mean it for evil Lord Jesus work it for good and for thy glory. Bless our conversation before we Go to your homes this afternoon. Go with us to your homes. Make it to be an encouraging afternoon to us. Meditating upon the Word and enjoying fellowship and friendship and comfort of family and friends. And then bring us back here again this evening. And bring others in as well. Extend thy kingdom and magnify Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. you